Thanks for listening to the Declaration Sermon of the Week. We hope you enjoy this message from Pastor John Sherrill. For more information about Declaration Church and other resources, visit declaration.org. Let's start this way. December 1995, all right? Look at a neighbor say 95. Do you remember it? It's a good year. 1995. A guy named Chuck Noland is his name. Chuck Noland. He's a time-obsessed systems engineer who travels full-time all around the world resolving productivity problems at FedEx depots. I mean, it doesn't matter where it is. He gets the call. He goes, and he steps in to try to fix the situation. He's been in this relationship with a girl named Kelly for years, and all they, 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 they really want to get married. They've got big plans to get married. Chuck's busy lifestyle and his job interferes greatly and very often with their relationship. So much so that there was a family Christmas. They had a bunch of friends that were coming over, big plans. Um, There's an interruption there. Chuck gets a phone call. He gets summoned to a, a FedEx problem in Malaysia. So he has to catch a flight that night. He has to get over there and he's got to go. That's his job. Tragically, while fo- he's flying through this very violent storm on his way to Malaysia, the plane crashes into the Pacific Ocean. But fortunately, Chuck survives and he escapes the sinking plane and is saved by an inflatable life raft. But in the stress of the situation and the power of the current and the waves, unfortunately, he loses his emergency locator transmitter. So clinging to the life raft, he's beginning to realize what a horrific situation that he's finding himself in. He's getting very tired. He's somewhat in in unbelief. He's overwhelmed. And he ends up losing consciousness and floats all through the night before washing up on the shore of an island. When he awakens, he begins to explore this land and soon discovers that it is completely uninhabited. He is completely and totally isolated and alone. Um, He doesn't know where he is. And as he explores, he begins to see that some of the packages from FedEx that was on that that plane that crashed were, that was washing up on shore. And so um, he starts to open some of them just to see what is in there that he might be able to use. He, he tries to come up with a plan for rescue. He, he tries to make a signal for rescue, even makes an escaped attempt to try to get to rescue, but he cannot pass the powerful surf in the coral reefs. And so he ends up right back, still desperate, looking for food, looking for water, looking for shelter, looking for supplies. So he turns back to the FedEx boxes, starts opening even more those things that had washed up, looking for useful items. And, you know, he finds himself there very frustrated. And in the process of doing this, he cuts his hand pretty bad, pretty deep, and starts bleeding. And and he gets mad. He starts throwing stuff around, including this package that he had opened that that had this volleyball in that. Does anybody know what I'm talking about yet? (laughs) How long did it take you? Um, So you probably figured out this is a plot of a well-known movie that came out in the year 2000, if you can believe that. Starring Tom Hanks called Castaway. It's a good movie. I remember that movie. And um, in it, we saw Tom's character, Chuck, go through nearly every emotion under the sun. I mean, he went through fear, depression. He went through exhaustion, inconsolable grief, hopelessness, resolve, resilience, disbelief, um, utter loneliness, and even anger. So much so, just like when he cut his hand and he threw that ball, and he, he goes and retrieves it and he draws a face in the bloody handprint of that ball that he affectionately and, of course, names Wilson because that's what it says on the ball, right? So he names it Wilson. It's his only friend. At one point, conversing with Wilson, he calculates that in order for rescue workers to 
find possibly where he's at, they would have to search the area two times the size of Texas. And this makes him begin to doubt that he will ever be found. Four years go by. We now see that Chuck has adapted to the island's meager conditions. Um, he's actually become actually very good at spearfishing. If you remember the movie, he wasn't so good in the beginning. Um, he's very good now at making fires. He's created himself basically a home of sorts. He also still had Wilson, his only friend. Um, one of the saddest scenes in the movie is when, when um, one day he finally decides, I'm going to make a go for this. So he, other things had washed up on the shore, and he had created some sort of makeshift raft, if you will, and he's going to leave the island in hopes of rescue. And, um, I, mean, I mean, what does he have to lose at this point, right? I mean, he's been there for a long time. There's, and so he's like, I'm going to go. I'm going to make a go for it. He, he calculates what he needs to make a go of it. He takes off, and, um, you know, he's resolved whatever fate may come. He's resolved. It's either live whatever days he has left with Wilson or potentially be found and taken back home. So he goes. He endures the rough storm at sea. And after that, he's exhausted. He sleeps. When he wakes up, here's the sad scene. He realizes that basically Wilson had started to drift off. And he starts to try to go after him. But, but he sees that Wilson has drifted too far to safely retrieve him. So he's back at his lifeboat, collapses into tears because now his only friend is gone. After everything that he's been through, I mean, it's just too much for him. Multiple times now, it's as if every basic human need has been committed completely stripped away from him. He's totally undone. He's once again finding himself absolutely alone and isolated. Now, this movie, Castaway, was actually a box office smash, over $430 million just in America alone, from what I understand. A lot of money. But beyond the emotional gripping narrative of this, I think lies a real fundamental, important, and incredibly deep truth. And here's what it is. The story is speaking to a basic human need, and that need is companionship. It's friendship. Um, we like to use the word around here, community, biblical community, true friendship, authentic. Here's why. We were not created to live in isolation or do life alone. We were not created to do life alone. We were created to be in community. The human heart is hardwired with a deep need for authentic friendship, both with each other, but also with God. In fact, if you look at Genesis chapter one, seven times in the story of creation, we see that God is looking at what he has created. And, and he says this phrase, he says, this is good. This is good. He even gets to some, this is very good. I mean, it was a perfect, sinless Environment And God took such great delight in everything that he created, declaring over and over, this is good, this is good. But what we see in Genesis 2 stands out in contrast to that. It's the only thing in all of creation that God created that he said himself, this is not good. Look at Genesis chapter 2, verse 18. It says, it's not good for man to be what? Alone, alone. So it's the only thing, again, in all of creation that God said, this is not good. Man's isolation, man's solitude in this context, God says, this is not good. This is not good. God's intention for your life is not isolation, but truly intimacy. God's intention is community, communion. 
Though perfect, sinless, and in perfect harmony with God, humans still needed to be in community with other humans. They needed friendship. God saw this, even if just a few. So God's first plan was to create woman, to be a companion to God, to allow him true, authentic, and loving relationship. And though since then our world has dramatically changed all throughout time, listen, the one thing that has not changed is our need for friendship, our need for true biblical community still remains. We're going to be in the book of Mark this morning. If you don't have a Bible this morning, I would encourage you, if you go to our Connection Center, I want you to grab, we've got some free ones over there. I think we still have a few. We're about to reorder some. Because I really want you to have your own copy. I know that we live in a digital world, but even in the digital world, watch how the enemy uses the digital world. Social media, be more connected than ever, but we're more disconnected than ever. We all need community. And so I would prefer, I'd love it if you had the real thing in your hands. So we're going to be in the book of Mark. Um, We're going to see a story that we don't see in any other gospel account. It's a story of what I think is a life-giving community, a friendship, a relationship. Um, It's a story of a man who's in his very own isolation. It's just like this chair. Remember, the chair represents the one. It's a story of the one, the man, he's deaf. And he's in need of rescue. He's in need of being set free. He's in need of healing. And we're going to call him the one today in our story. Because that's the series we've been in, the one. And we've been seeing how Jesus has such great compassion for people. How he came for us. He came for people. He came for the one. How he carries us. He carries the one. How he celebrates the one. And how he also now calls us to the ones all around us. The ones that are hurting. The ones that have need. The lonely ones. The isolated ones. The ones in need of healing. The ones in need of rescue. The ones in need of friendship and freedom and deliverance. So let's look at Mark chapter 7. I'm going to read just six verses starting in 31. And I'll read for you. Mark 7, 31 through 37. Jesus left Tyre and went up to Sidon before going back to the Sea of Galilee and the region of the Ten Towns. A deaf man with a speech impediment was brought to him. And the people begged Jesus to lay his hands on the man and heal him. Jesus led them away from the crowd so that they could be alone. He put his fingers into the man's ears. Then spitting on his own fingers, he touched the man's tongue. Looking up to heaven, he sighed and said, Ephatha which means be opened. Instantly the man could hear perfectly and his tongue was freed so that he could speak plainly. Jesus told the crowd not to tell anyone, but the more he told them not to, the more they spread the news. They were completely amazed and said again and again, everything he does is wonderful. He even makes the deaf to hear and gives speech to those who cannot speak. Let's pray together, can we? Father, would you speak to us clearly through your word, empower your word, Holy Spirit. Allow us to only hear the things that apply to us that you would want us to hear and leave behind the things that we don't need to hear today. But Lord, I pray that you would encourage each and every one of us to that next step that you have for us. So we pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen. So we start in verse 31. Jesus left Tyre. I don't really know how to say that. I kind of want to jokingly say Tyre. No, he did not leave Tyre Bank Show. He just left Tyre. And he went to Sidon before going back to the Sea of Galilee in a region of 10 towns. Jesus is going here. There's a lot of traveling here. Um, And understand, I want you to know, this is a Gentile territory that he's moving through. And as he goes, that's been a big phrase for us for the past few weeks. Because we see as Jesus is moving, as he's going, there's a lot of ministry happening. There's a lot of interruptions going on. He's moving, he's going as he goes, teaching people, touching people. He's declaring truth and he's demonstrating truth and power. I mean, the 
route, I think, as I was looking, okay, why is it important for us to know this? This is a pretty intense route that he's taking. It's about the equivalent of 120 miles on a map that he's going. So all this stop to stop to stop that you see in that verse, that's the equivalent of Jesus moving 120 miles. And he's ministering all along the way. And now he finds himself in the middle of this area known as Decapolis, which is AKA 10 cities. Maybe your translation says 10 towns, which was much like Rome away from Rome. And so it's a pretty nice bustling area. Um, It's kind of a hub, if you will. A lot of life, a lot of activity, a lot of commerce, decent space. And that's where Jesus finds himself. And as he's in this area, they, I'm just going to call them they, bring a deaf man with a speech impediment to him. It says a deaf man with a speech impediment was brought to him, was brought to Jesus. Now, as we've already kind of established here in the past few weeks, this is not an abnormal occurrence. As Jesus is moving, as he's going, crowds gather um, and it's very usual that Jesus finds himself interrupted all along the way and asked to minister to someone's needs. So that's not, that's not an abnormal thing. Oftentimes, we see Jesus obliges, making every moment count. And I thought a lot about that. You know, I've got a buddy who pastors a church in um, South Houston, Richmond area. And one of the statements that their whole church always says, and man, when I saw it, I was like, that's brilliant because that's exactly what we need to think about. He always says, be moment ready. And so that's what their church always says, be moment ready. That's exactly what Jesus is doing. He is moment ready right now. This guy is brought to him. He wants to make every moment count. He's using every interruption as an invitation to someone's freedom, to someone's wholeness, to someone's life change. Um, And like most days, here he is going. They bring this guy to him. And um, it says, and the people, the people who brought him to Jesus, they begged Jesus to lay his hands on the man to heal him. So obviously, you've got some players in the story here. You've got Jesus, you've got the crowd, you've got this deaf man, and you've got his friends. Um, Obviously, they know a little bit of context. They must have heard of Jesus, or or they must have seen something about Jesus and miracles and all this stuff. And, 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 you know, also important to understand, in this context, biblical times, you've got this deaf person. The contribution of a deaf person to society in that day would be dramatically viewed significantly different than how we would view someone with this type of of hearing issue today. Um, Honestly, back then, these people, these deaf people, they would have been viewed as having very little value, very little worth, tragically. Um, Realistically, most anything that made someone differently abled in these days, in this context, pretty much made them an outcast. I mean, you'd have blind people. They would end up being the beggars a lot of times. You'd have deaf people. You know, these are deficient. Um, Therefore, these people are pretty much shunned. Diseased people, like the lepers, um, they might as well have been left for dead. Most of them were banished away from community. They were kicked out of the city. They lived on the outskirts with all of the other outcasts. I mean, these are all people destined to live a life of and in isolation of some sorts. And these are the people that we're calling the one in our series. Because get this, even though a lot of time has passed, we still have a lot of people with a lot of different conditions that tragically even our society labels as outcasts. Kicked out, disenfranchised, left behind, politicized, isolated, alone. I mean, have you ever felt that way? Have you ever felt like an outcast? Do you know someone who feels that way or even someone who lives that way? They act that way. 
These are the people, these are the very people that Jesus was deeply attracted to. They're the people that he came to rescue, the ones that he saw when no one else did. I mean, these were the people with, with maybe disease and no dignity. They had conditions, no community. They were condemned in their own circumstance. And Jesus would not only see them, but he would acknowledge them. He would touch them. He would speak to them. He would not ignore them. He would dine with them. He would befriend them. So how Jesus responded to these people began to literally turn the religious system on its head. I mean, this was a system realistically built on exclusivity. Think about it. You've got Pharisees and scribes, and they had their little huddle. And, and if the rabbi came to you or your kid and said, follow me, that was a big deal. I mean, this system back in the day was built on exclusivity. Now here's Jesus building it on inclusivity. Whew. I mean, inclusive of all the outwardly outcasts. The lowlifes, the lepers, the diseased, the demonized. I mean, he is inviting and appealing. He was befriending those that didn't belong in that society. He was fixated on the ones who needed deliverance, who needed rescue and release and healing and freedom. And now right here in front of him, you've got this deaf and this mute guy. and Probably a guy considered in that day what they would say deaf and dumb. Meaning he can't hear and he cannot speak. He hears nothing but silence. He is nothing but silent. And his, his life has been reduced to just nothing but an insignificant and silent life to most. But not to Jesus. And not to some of these friends who saw that this man needed freedom and deliverance. You know, I started thinking about that word deliverance because I've been really thinking about some of the words I use, some of these churchy big words. And I started looking up, what does the word deliverance mean? Because I heard this song that just gripped me. And man, I have not been able to get away from the song so much so that I'm making Jacob lead it here in a few minutes. So be kind to him because I sprung it on him this week. But um, it's a really great song. So I was like, what does this word deliverance mean? And this is the definition of deliverance. The action of being rescued or set free. Man, I thought that was good. So here we have Jesus, crowds that are always around Jesus, the deaf mute guy, and those who brought this guy to Jesus. Were, were they his friends? I mean, obviously, and somewhat uniquely, I think, in this context, that, that this guy had some people that cared about him. I think that I found that a little bit amazing. Again, a little unusual to the culture, but nevertheless, this guy had these friends, and, and from now on, I'm going to refer to them as they, okay? So somebody say they, because I'm going to use that word a lot. And it's going to sound like it's out of like sorts a bit, but you're going to get it now because you know exactly who I'm talking about. They, they. And they come to him and they say, Jesus, will you touch him? Will you just lay your hands on him? Because if you touch him, you can heal him. You can heal him. So these people were this deaf man's community if you will. There were a small group of people that rallied around this guy. I mean, were these people that possibly he potentially grew up with? I don't know. Was it some of his family? I don't know. Scripture's silent on this. We just know that these people brought him to Jesus. They brought their friend in need to Jesus. Gentiles, again, obviously they've heard of him. Maybe they've seen a miracle somewhere. Maybe they've got a personal story about something. I don't know. But they bring their friend in need to Jesus. Do you know what this tells me about us as I was really reading and praying? This is what it tells me. Sometimes we all need a they. We all need a they. Sometimes you need a they. You need a they. Verse 32, a deaf man with a speech impediment is brought to him. 
They bring him to Jesus and obviously moved with compassion. Look at verse 33. Jesus leads him away from the crowd so they could be alone. Why did he do this? Why did he do this? Could it be, I mean, some say, you know, there was a story not long before where Jesus had set a demonized man free. And I'm sure that kind of freaked out everybody. Can I tell you something? I've been in a situation that freaked out everybody. Freaked me out too. I was raised a good little Southern Baptist boy. We did not talk about demonized people, y'all. Much less somebody on the floor going, ah! we didn't do that. Like that was not discussion, right? Just wasn't. You want to you know something pretty interesting. You want to talk about like a reputation going around. If something like that happens at one of the services that, oh yeah, everybody's talking about that the next day. Well, that's exactly what had happened to Jesus. And so one of the things that we, we may think, well, why did he pull him aside? Why did he get him away from the crowd? Possibly because of the negative press that went around when Jesus had set this one guy free from his demonized state. I don't know. But that was just one of the things that as, as I'm studying was, was this could be why. We don't exactly know. All we know is Jesus took this guy and his buddies somewhere a little bit more private away from the crowd. I said it last week. I'm going to say it again. Sometimes in order for you to see Jesus move, you got to remove the crowd. Sometimes you got to. Sometimes you just need to get alone with Jesus or even with Jesus and just a small group of people huddled around you and doing work with God, begging for that freedom. You know, what I believe about this moment is that Jesus didn't, he didn't want this to be a public spectacle. He didn't want this to become a thing. He, he didn't want it to be a public message he was trying to declare, but, but more so just a private miracle. He had compassion on this guy. So he pulls him away and immediately it's like he takes this guy by the face and he takes his fingers and puts his fingers in his ears. I thought, well, that's a little weird. You know, I don't know about you, but if, I mean, what if we're hanging out and we're talking all of a sudden, I just look at you in the face and put my finger in your ears. I mean, <laughs> what? No, this is important. You know why? I think, I think that, man, it would have been, first of all, think about this. It would have been useless for Jesus to be, let me just talk to you for a minute. The guy can't hear him, right? He can't hear him. So to speak to him would have been pointless. So what is Jesus doing here with compassion? He's touching the inefficient part of his life. He's dignified. He, he is literally touching him. He's putting his fingers in his ears saying, I am aware of your situation. I am aware of your condition. I see you and I'm about to do something about this. He's basically communicating with this man in this way. And scripture says, looking up in heaven, verse 34, he's, Jesus does this deep sigh and then he speaks this Aramaic word, ephetha. So with this deep sigh, he's, imagine the scene. He's got this guy and he's, he's got his fingers in his ears. I mean, that sigh might've represented a lot of things. It could have been, you know, this deep emotion or this expression of, of power. It could have been, it could have even been anger, grief, compassion. It could have been a lot of things. Um, the sigh is an outward and inward groan at the same time. It's a verb that happens. It's to groan with a compassionate response to a deep concern. It's Jesus responding possibly to the pain and sorrow that sin has brought into the world, to the brokenness of not only this individual, but collectively. And so we see this groaning. Jesus, this sigh of relief, we see it in other places in scripture. Romans chapter eight, verse 23, look what it says. And we, we believers also what? Groan. Even though we have the Holy Spirit within us as a foretaste of future glory, for we long for our bodies to be released from sin and suffering. 
So here we see a lot of the same type of verb, if you will, a lot of the same type of feeling, emotion of Jesus when he sighs. And just to double down on it, look at verse 26 of Romans 8. It says this, and the Holy Spirit helps us in our weakness. For example, we don't know what God wants us to pray for, but the Holy Spirit prays for us with what? Groanings that cannot be expressed in words. So Jesus, his This sigh is really a groaning. It's a grieving of the brokenness of this man. And so he sighs, this deep sigh, and he does exactly what his friends had begged him to do. He touches the man with compassion and care and dignity and acknowledgement, putting his fingers in his ears and spits on his own fingers if if that wasn't weird. And then he he touches the guy's tongue. And he looks up at heaven and he says, Ephatha, this word which basically means be opened. Be opened, looking up. Looking up in prayer was not abnormal to Jesus. This could have been a couple of different things. By looking up, maybe Jesus is letting this deaf man and his friends know the source and the nature of the power that's necessary, that's needed to heal him. But also, I believe it could have been indicating Jesus' relationship with God who gave him the power and authority to do everything he'd been doing. So here he is. Ephatha, be opened. He commands the guy to be open. And I really want you to, don't miss this. I want you to hear this. See, there's no real need for trying to determine which particular part of the person was told to be opened, okay? Because when Jesus touches something and says be opened, the whole person is opened. I mean, when Jesus releases us from the power of Satan's accusations and Satan's chains and lies, he sets us completely free, not just partially free. The love of Jesus defeats the enemy and places victory in clear sight. You see, here, here's, here's, again, let me double back on to something I said last week as we were talking. And I said, a lot of us, I found myself in the situation before where I want to pray, God, would you fix my condition God, would you step into my situation? Do you see my suffering? Can you take this suffering off of me? God, can you, can you fix this circumstance? But rarely do we find ourselves going, God, can you just change me? See, we want God to change the situation or the, the suffering or the circumstance. But, but most, you know, God, to, ch- to change me. But can I tell you something? When Jesus declares Ephatha over your life and says, be open, be free. Man, that's holistic. He's not, just, he's not just concerned about that one situation right there. He's concerned about the whole entirety of your life. He wants you free and open and whole. That's why I continue to say, and I just say it over and over and over. Listen, the will of God is your freedom. It's your freedom. It may not be instantaneous for some of us. For some of us, we see in scripture over and over, we've seen it where and instantaneously, even here, instantaneously and instantly, verse 35, the man could hear perfectly and his tongue was freed so he could speak plainly. And sometimes that can be the case, but can I tell you something? I wonder how long this guy had been in that condition. Much like the, the, the bleeding woman that we looked at for 12 years. I wonder, I wonder how easy it was How easy was it for her to to shift, to reorient her whole life to her healing now? Did she continue to live in that state? I'll say this. The physical things that we see, it's probably a lot easier for people to embrace and walk in their freedom than some of the emotional and mental things that we deal with today. 
And can I tell you something? While I believe that Jesus instantly can touch you and say, be opened and you will, you will see your healing, you may have to be reminded by a group of people who love you around you day after day, hey, you've been healed because the enemy is gonna try to convince you of everything but. So when Jesus touches this man, he speaks this word and we see, we see this guy's healed. I mean, they had brought him to Jesus. They, it'd be like us, man, Jesus, please. This guy, you know, every time when we set these things up, I'm, I just, man, just pray, God, would you meet with the person who's gonna occupy this seat today? Ephatha. Would you touch them? Because you know what? Listen, sometimes we need a they. Sometimes we need a they. Those who will care enough to drag you if they have to to the feet of Jesus, begging him to touch you. If not for this small group of people driven to get this man to Jesus, this man may not have been set free. So don't, please don't miss this. Listen, you can sit in a crowd and you can be near Jesus. You can even come to church, which I'm glad that you do. I love to see your, I love to see your smiles and your faces. I want you here. You could even come to church, get near Jesus, and be encouraged, and that's great. I, again, highly recommend it, but there are times that Jesus needs to pull you away and get personal with you in a more private setting. The small group of friends for this guy, man, they were persistent, they were passionate, and they brought the one to Jesus, the, the one in need of freedom the, freedom, the one in need of release and healing, the one in need of deliverance. Man, it really convicted me because it made me say, man, am I bringing people to Jesus? I'm not talking about am I going out and witnessing people and telling them. No, no, no. Am I persistent and passionate and do I love them enough to stay with them and continually reminding them, even if just by the pattern of my own life and, and by the struggle of continuing to, to deny flesh and walk in the spirit, is it, is it encouraging enough for them to see something different in me that might encourage them to the feet of Jesus? Are we bringing people to Jesus? Are we passionate? Are we persistent? I mean, everywhere we look, I can tell you this, the one is everywhere around us. They're everywhere. And they need Jesus. And get this, they may already be, they may already be a part of the crowd. They may already even be at the church. Any church. But the question is, are they part of your group? Are you investing into them? Are you a part of a smaller group like that? Because many times in life, you may need a they. Your release from bondage, your healing, your freedom, your deliverance might very well require a they. The faith of these friends helped this man find freedom. The persistence and passion of this group invited the power of God to do something amazing, to touch their deaf friend and to give him deliverance. We all need a what? A they. Those who are willing to love us in spite of our condition. Those who are willing to love us in spite of our disease. Those who are willing to fight for our freedom when we don't have faith to fight on our own behalf. Today, listen, we want to give you an opportunity. We want to invite you to engage with other people who are just like you. Maybe some of the same season of life. Maybe it's some of the interests that you have. It doesn't matter what it is. We all need a they. And these people, they need a they as well. We all need each other. We all need a small group of people that care about us. We all need a small group of people that will come after us when we want to run. And can I tell you something? One of the greatest challenges that I face as a pastor and that our team faces as a pastoral team is, is keeping up with everyone. 
We love you so I, I can, uh, week after week, there's a family that'll hit my mind and I'm thinking, have I seen them in a bit? And I just begin to pray for them. And sometimes if I can even get, get myself to remember at that time when I'm on email, I will reach out and say, how are you? Or I'll try to text or something. It's very hard to keep up with four to 500 people. Which is why sometimes that small group, man, if you want to be connected, if you really want to be connected with people and stay connected with God, get into this smaller group of people. It doesn't have to be as formal as this. This is one way that we do it. It's one of the most important ways that we do it. But the, the encouragement is, is that you surround yourself with a small group of they, those friends who see the best in you, who want the best for you. They're going to come after you when you want to run. They're going to carry you when you can't walk on your own sometimes. When you can't even take the next step, they're going to help you. They're going to cover you. They're going to protect you in prayer. They're going to champion you. They're going to cheer you on, and they're going to celebrate the wins with you. We all need a they. Those that are going to drag us in our deaf and dumb state to Jesus in faith and contend and fight for our freedom and for our deliverance. Please listen to me, church. Man, we all need each other. We do. The battle is not getting any easier. I don't know if you've just kind of checked the thermometer lately, culturally and spiritually out there. Man, we all need each other. And I want to encourage you today. The whole reason of, of the rally that we have is that we launch our small groups for this season. And the whole purpose of those small groups is, yes, yes, we want you to have community. But really, my, my heart and my prayer for these small groups is not only will you find that community and that family, those friends, is that you will truly begin to walk in freedom. Some of you have had the condition just like the bleeding woman for 12 years. Some of you find yourself with a sickness that you didn't know, just like Jairus and his daughter, and it was coming. And, 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 and man, you're desperate. And you can try to go at it alone. Or you can, you can do battle with those who are really feeling called to do battle with you. Can I tell you three things that I believe small groups are for? Number one, small groups, they're where you can find family, to feel belonging, to know that you belong. You're going to be encouraged. You're going to be covered in prayer. Ecclesiastes 4, 9 and 10 says, this, Two are better than one because they have a good return for their labor. If either of them falls down, one can help the other up. But pity anyone who falls and has no one to help them up. Don't find yourself to be the loner in that story. You don't have to live on a deserted island trying to make a go at it. Proverbs 17, a friend loves at all times and a brother is born for adversity. Listen, you have a lot of friends in your life, but how many of us really have brothers that we know that, man, we're on the battlefield for each other. We're covering each other. Philippians 2.4, let each of you look not only for his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Man, this is a place where you're going to be cared for by design. These people are no different than you. They've just decided, you know what, God, I'm going to allow you to leverage something that I'm already involved in or something that I'm excited about or something that I'm interested in. And I'm going to invite people to do this with me and just encourage each other with this. The people leading these groups, you can lead a group. Anyone can lead a group. We'll show you and tell you exactly how. And we want to encourage you as the days go on. You want to make a difference? You want to see spiritual legacy? Man, start walking with people. Start walking with people. Small groups are where you can find family. 
you can find family. Secondly, small groups are where you can find freedom to live in victory week after week, gathering together, encouraging each other, praying for each other, helping each other take that next spiritual self, uh, step, but also to see the deliverance, to see the freedom. James 5, 16, man, we've, we've looked at this and we're gonna keep looking at this. We're gonna keep drilling this because the more and more I look at this, the more and more I become convinced. Look at James 5, 16. It says, therefore, confess your sins to who? And, and pray for who? So that you may be what? Man, we need each other. This is part of God's plan for your healing. This is part of God's plan for your freedom. That you would trust one another in the safety of that small group that cares for you. And say, can I tell you my, my watch this, you with me? Can I, can I tell you my conditions? Can I let you know what my disease is? This is, this is anti-cultural. But that's what this is. Therefore, confess your sins to each other. Pray for each other that you may be healed. The prayer of the righteous man is powerful and effective. 13 weeks of this season right here. 13 opportunities to be in that group of they for one another. Passionate, persistent, pressing into the presence of God together. And now some of you may be going, well, I'm just signing up, you know, to, to, to work out on Mondays. <laughs> yes, but watch this. It's amazing what happens when you get a group of people that all have the spirit of God inside of them. And as you, even as you work out together and you, you encourage each other with scripture and you pray for one another, that's discipleship. Can I tell you something? I, I hope that you learned something at Declaration Church. But my goal is not to inform you. My goal is to pray that you are transformed. You know, Pastor Chris, I, I heard Pastor Chris Hodges at Highlands. It's like he, he spoke to my love language one day because he started talking about, you know, if your people are like, I just want to go deeper. I just want to go deeper. He said, chances are they're already in over their head. Most people need a life raft. They don't know how to translate that in Greek. I hope you learn something. I really do. But my goal for you is not more information. My goal. My, my heart, and I believe the heart of God for you is transformation. Discipleship is walking this thing out. It's not learning the latest, greatest podcast preacher's points or being able to cite the latest, greatest Christian author's chapter and, and title. I mean, it's just not. I have learned more from situations and walking through suffering and circumstances than I ever learned from the discipleship how-to one-on-one book and guide. Now, I'm gonna tell you this. It's not that we don't have those. We have some great studies and we have some really great people who have a depth and a well of knowledge and they're gonna pour it out. But I can tell you this, their goal too is while you're learning about Jesus is that you're, you're looking more like Jesus. So not only can you find family, but you can find freedom. You can also find a foundation. Proverbs 27, 17, as iron sharpens iron, so a friend sharpens a friend. Hebrews 3, 13, exhort one another every day as long as it is called today. Speaking to, hey, time is short, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. 1 Thessalonians 5, 11, therefore encourage one another and build one another up just as you were doing. Hebrews 10, 24 and 25, don't miss this one. Let us consider how to stir one another towards love and good works, not neglecting to meet together. Can I say this? I, I wish I'd have said this in the nine. We make time for what matters. And so I know, I know, I know, I know, I know. I need to work out more. I know, it's okay. And you know what I've been doing? I've been working out more every morning. 
Making time for the things that matters. But can I tell you something? And I'm, I'm going to say this lovingly and gently. A lot of us are fixated on our physical appearance. We need to start fixating on our spiritual appearance. And so, so I'm going to tell you, I'm gonna, I just invite you, 13 weeks. Man, devote yourself and watch what God can do in 13 weeks. If I ate right for 13 weeks and worked out every day, I might look like someone who deserves to be hanging out with my wife. I'm just saying. <laughs> just saying. She's hot. I know people get mad when I say that. I even had somebody come in. Would you stop saying that? It's just dishonoring. No, it's honoring. My wife is hot. I don't care what you think. Get over you. Sorry. But here's the truth. Listen, in 13 weeks, man, anything can happen. And Jesus can change everything. He can do that in an instant. A lot of the times it's our availability and our humility and our heart to say, God, yes, I need this. I want you. My prayer for our small groups is that you know you have a home, a place where you belong, where you have family, a place where the best, the best is seen in you. <laughs> the best is believed of you and the best is desired for you. You're going to find a family and community, but also you're going to find freedom where you can take those spiritual steps towards freedom and that foundation. You know what the result of all this was? And I'm going to invite the band to come back. The result of all this story and back in Mark, look at the response. Jesus tells these people, this crowd, he says, man, don't tell anyone. But the more he told them not to say anything, the more they spread the news. I mean, they were completely amazed. And again and again, they would say, everything he does is wonderful. He even makes the deaf people hear and he gives speech to those who can't speak. I mean, there's a praise outbreak going on right here. I call it the praise pandemic. That's what I'm praying for Declaration Church in Spring, Texas. That all of a sudden, God would begin to touch people and that we'd begin to walk with each other in such a way that we would have a praise pandemic going on because God is moving in power and we're seeing people set free. Come on, somebody. Amen. I mean, may this be a picture of our church that we'd be completely amazed by Jesus. That we can't help but declare his mighty acts. Just like that, that theme verse, Psalm 145, that gave us our name. We declare his mighty acts for who he is and all that he's doing in our lives. And what he's doing in the lives of the one. He's our deliverance. He's our rescue. He's our freedom. He's the one. Thanks for listening to the Declaration Podcast. I pray today that you feel encouraged, loved, and hopeful. If you missed us this week, join us next Sunday at Snyder Elementary in Spring, Texas at 9 and 11 a.m. We can't wait to meet you and welcome you home. Have a blessed day and see you soon.